How are we doing today, folks? My guest today is going to be Peter Judge. Peter is a former national and world champion in freestyle skiing. Peter also went on to become the head coach of Canada's freestyle program, where he coached Olympic gold medalists, world champions, and World Cup winners. Peter went on to become the CEO of Freestyle Canada in a position he held from 2004 to 2014, and then he went on a brief stint to become the director of Own the Podium from 2014 to 2018. Now, Peter's back as the CEO of Freestyle Canada. I've known Peter since I was eight years old. He was my first coach when I first met him at Freestyle International, a freestyle camp that Peter ran out of Mount Hood and then eventually at a Whistler Black home. Peter and all the other coaches at Freestyle International back in 1998 created a monster and sparked my path into freestyle skiing, which still continues to this day. I'm forever grateful to Peter and his fantastic enthusiasm towards the sport and life in general. Peter is truly one of the most influential people in the sport of freestyle skiing and also in my life. I hope you enjoy Peter's journey of failures and successes along the way. Perfect. We're rolling. Peter, thanks for taking the time, sir. I appreciate it. No, my, my pleasure. Great to uh, see you again, uh, both, uh, well, not in person, but at least see you. And uh, yeah, this is uh, good fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy Canada Day. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. It doesn't feel very celebratory around here right now, but uh, we're slowly kind of crawling our way back to normal a little bit. Right. Yeah. I, feel, I have a feeling that this uh, 4th of July is not going to be quite as... Uh celebrational as pretty a, pretty as muted yeah yes yeah. <laughs> but i uh i wanted you to know i busted out i got a surprise for you this is from really really far back in the day nice yes nice. i think it might be one of the last ones that are still in existence it so. is and that the gold with the gold uh the gold emblazoned that's uh that's a rarity that's a and that's a that's a high quality one too that's yeah. a high, yes for those out there that are uh, listening it's a freestyle international uh t-shirt which was the camp that Peter used to run uh, back in the day when I was a young young whippersnapper. You were uh, you were my first coach and uh, quite accomplished. Uh, and having to deal with me as an eight year old, <laughs> but uh, not only that, ski career. I mean, uh, World Cup champion and um, uh, just super influential in the world of uh, freestyle, not only around the world but uh, Canada. Super influential. I mean, you were the CEO there for about a decade and then you went to be the director of uh wind sport right or uh, uh own the podium yeah the podium. so i oversaw all the uh, all the winter sports for four years going into korea mm -hmm. and we had our most successful winter games ever both on the olympic and Par paralympic side so that was that was good yeah absolutely. And then i got to have a little bit of a hiatus and chase my oldest son around uh his he's a he's a rower so i got to chase him around for a bit of a summer and watch him at a world championships and, uh, and some world cups and stuff. And, uh, and then, uh, went back to freestyle a little, uh, about a year and a half ago. So it's been uh, full circle, <laughs> full circle and you're back. You know, I, I, it's always funny with talking to people around, um, freestyle here in the U S uh, I, I certainly blame you for the monster that you've created over there. Obviously you've had some, some talented athletes, uh, to go along, along the way to, to help that, but uh, you really have quite the quite the juggernaut that is Canadian freestyle these days. Yeah, look, I think um, you know so so much of um, you know success is is about um, culture, and so much of culture is about managing your resources too. Um, and you know, cu culture is a pretty important piece of uh, of any successful organization. Doesn't matter whether it's business or sport or you know a team. And if you look at if you look at any you know, kind of sport legacy or corporate legacy, um, there is a, you know, a pretty significant um, element of culture that's, that's somehow built in, um, bred in, uh, uh, factored in, and, and it, it, you know, I've been blessed in, in that. I think, as you said, we've had some phenomenal athletes. I mean, you, you don't, you know, you don't make a guy like Kingsbury, you know, like, right. um, you know, he, he's obviously, uh, you know, an anomaly in and of himself, but, um, but he's also, you know, kind of bought into the whole culture that that um, that we try and create, and and uh, certainly, you know, has helped to to foster that as well. Right. Now, how how hard was it in creating that culture for you? Because obviously, it's taken a little bit of time. You've been there a long time. I mean, what what what's the kind of work that goes into to building those cultures? Because you you hear that term a lot, and it's definitely not something that just happens overnight. <laughs> no, and and you know the the funny thing is is you know. Culture is, is more driven by action than it is by words. 
Um, certainly words play an important part in terms of, um, you know, delivering messages. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the daily do's and the daily sees that, that make a big difference. So, you know, what, what people um, see, uh, you know, other people in the organization doing what they see you doing right. uh, and, what, and what they choose to do. Um, and those are the, those are the kind of, you know, the backbones. And I think, you know, as well, um, accountability and, um, and work ethic are the two basic elements of culture across all things. And then it, it may shift based on what your nuance, if you're a sport, it may involve, you know, a particular commitment to a, a certain element inside the sport. If you're Apple, for example, it may be about, you know, kind of innovation may be the next piece, but those two basic elements are always there regardless. Right. Yeah, no, you definitely, uh, that, that accountability is, is key. One thing I'm, I'm kind of curious going back, where, where does that drive, uh, start for you? Like what, what drove you? Because I mean, obviously you were extremely successful, not only as a skier, but then as a coach and now, you know, running this, the, uh, whole association. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, it all comes down to passion. And, um, you know, I, I've always, I, since, you know, I started skiing at 10 years old and I uh, did my first flip when I was about 13. Yeah. Um, so I was a, I was a early adopter in, into the, into the freestyle world. And, and I, you know, I just love skiing. I, I love skiing and I, first and foremost, and I, I obviously, you know, uh, love and, and have a, a wonderful, great affinity for, for freestyle and the people in it. And, and um, it, it really comes down to, you know, that passion. And, and if you, you know, for me, being able to wake up every day since I was a teenager and, you know, kind of do what I loved um, helped me be able to kind of stay energized through, you know, almost five decades now of, of being engaged in this. So, um, yeah, it it really is, it really is a a lot about that and, and, you know, just loving the people, loving, you know, the environment, loving what you do and, and certainly most first and foremost loving the sport. Right. What, what, what drove you to that, to that passion? Where did you grow up? Uh, where were you first skiing? Yeah, um, I grew up in in uh, in Calgary, and uh, my home resort was Sunshine Village. Um, I, I was very fortunate in that um, I was I got involved in in uh, teaching skiing. Uh, there wasn't a race program at the at the resort at the time, and and uh, so um, I got engaged in teaching skiing very young at thirteen, um, and was able to thirteen. Yeah, teaching. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and and that really helped me a lot because it you know, I got to, um, be around some wonderful coaches, teachers, um, that helped me at a very young age, understand pedagogy, understand curriculum, understand how to relate to people and and relate concepts to people. Um, which I think, you know, was a, a a marvelous platform for coaching, you know, once, once I got further down the road, you know, another, you know, kind of seven, eight years down the road. And then, um, you know, that, that was, that was, I think, really the basis for, for me being able to understand those communicative skills to be able to um, convey concepts to people and, and be able to adapt terrain and, you know, all of the things that I think are really important in terms of teaching and then teaching the great coaches can teach as well right. and, and be able to move back and forth. And that's, you know, going back to, you know, Freestyle International, that was one of the greatest what I loved so much about, you know, being able to spend that month a year with, with, um, you know, kids like yourself at the time, kid at the time, (laughs) but, uh, and even adults that were eager to learn, but, um, it was that when you have to go back and teach concepts, it, it really makes you think more about, about, um, how you relate to people and, and, you know, it, it makes you learn to attack from more directions than one that one message that reaches one athlete won't reach another so you have to find another way and another way and another way and sometimes it's Socratic so it makes you I think more aware so from a coaching side it makes you a far better coach I think right yeah no I mean it definitely not all those athletes learn the same right I mean I always have the uh, term you got to have more than one arrow in your quiver especially when you're dealing (laughs) with an athlete because uh, they don't respond the same way, you know, it'd be no. a lot easier if they all do. But part of that is it's, uh, it's part of the fun though, you know, trying to figure out what's going to make it click. Oh, ab- absolutely. Like, okay. This jump, try this, or try to do this when you're going through, you know, this, this turn or whatever else. I mean, it kind of, 
makes you want to come back for more, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, the puzzle part of it is is right. a yeah. you know, and and it, it, it you know, I think as an ADHD person, you know, ha- having that different stimulus all the time, mm-hmm. it, it helps you to stay engaged and not be bored and find you know ways to satisfy your own internal hunger to to grow and develop. So moving in like as an athlete that's such a young age to kind of start into coaching how how did that help when you you know started becoming a professional skier yeah look i think um again you know uh, having to teach things to people and you know my athletic career was largely um well it was pretty much entirely without coaches so i became the first national team coach after i retired in 84. Um, so my entire, you know, kind of world cup career of eight years was, was without, you know, uh, any coaching, we were all, we all worked together. So, um, you know, I think me having the teaching background helped a lot because I had to think in those terms of, you know, okay, well, uh, more, more critically about breaking skills down and then being able to reconstruct them and being able to detect and correct, even if it was only on myself or the people around me. And that was, you know, that was one of the great things about the camaraderie of, the, of, the, of that time period is the athletes all work together. I think it's a lot like the, you know, the, the new school athletes of today, you know, where they've kind of created this entity and they've, you know, largely at the cutting edge. So they've been self-taught and now we're just seeing coaches start to be able to kind of catch up to the, where they're at and be able to actually help them move forward, you know? Right. I mean, how crazy is that looking back on it now though? Because especially, I mean, I just feel like in our society today, like, there's a 10 year old that's playing baseball. He's got two coaching, you know, he's got his throwing coach. He's got his batting coach. And, and really uh, it, it's crazy to think that, especially back then at that level, right. Uh, I mean, you've kind of been through all of the, uh, this kind of revolution and evolution of the sport, right. I mean, from back in that day where you don't, you know, no video cameras and you're kind of going through <laughs> certainly no helmets when you're, you know, going on yeah. aerial jumps and, yeah. and everything else. I mean, that's pretty, pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting and it's very interesting to reflect on, you know, uh, society and, and sport in, in that, in that, in that context. And, you know, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword on, on one hand, you really, you know, I think um, the, the, the technical acceleration of, of, of skill acquisition is is paramount now that you have you know that that access to knowledge right um, and and so I think you know we're seeing kids that are progressing you know so fast through technical layers and and I think that's great um, but I think a lot of the element of you know being accountable to yourself of um, you know of having to you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, solve the puzzle, figure stuff out yourself, um, rather than necessarily have the answer, you know, kind of given to you. Um, I I think that that's a bit of a a, a loss, uh, you know, and I think there should still be time planned or Socratic uh, coaching sessions planned with with athletes so they don't lose that. Because I think that's an important element of, of accountability. If, if you're, if you have to figure some stuff out on your own yeah then you're going to be a you have greater pride in what you accomplish and 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 b i think it helps you understand the layering of it but you know in in a case where you're you're you know just handed the answer a lot of times it can make you just follow blindly and that's not always the best thing and we've seen you know some of the great you know sports dilemmas that we have right now out there um you know with you know, in terms of um, harassment and, and a lot of things that's unfortunately seated in that I just blindly follow kind of right. mentality. So yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, I think it, it's, it's lifted sport immeasurably, but I also think in some ways it's lifted or kind of devalued human creativity Definitely. and our ability to be, um, you know, grow as individuals through sport. I feel like it takes away some of the, the ownership like as you talk about, like when you try to figure stuff out on your own a little bit more and, and some of those things, it's interesting now, like if you have 10 athletes on a run or something, they come down and like, well, did you see that? How did it look? It's like, well, how, you know, you're not automatically, I shouldn't have to give you feedback for every single run. You should be able to know the difference between one run and the next and not need an automatic breakdown on coach's eye or on this, like you, you, you know, I feel like that needs to be embedded in where it's, you spend one hour and I'm not giving you any feedback. 
you're just trying to figure it out on your own. Maybe I'll video a couple and we can talk about it after the day is done or something along those lines, because it has really come to that every single uh, run, every single jump, every single thing that you do is now broken down video break broken into a fraction of a second or, you know, to really see that toe drive on a lay or, or whatever it may be. Um, that kind of take, takes away a little bit of just being able to get that your own feeling of it. Right. Oh, I, like absolutely so much feel in the sport and that yeah. kind of gets sucked away when it's like, okay, you're supposed to do it like this and you yeah. don't really build absolutely. that feeling. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I really, you know, um, one of the, uh, well, one of the great things or great things I've seen in, in a lot of great coaches is they employ a Socratic method of, of working with people. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're drawing the answer out of the person. They're making the person provide the answer as opposed to spoon feeding them the, the so that there's a deeper, deeper level, level of understanding there and a greater assimilation of, as you said, you know, the feeling and, and, and uh, you know, the concept of, of what they're doing. So let alone, you know, the, the person develops as a, as a human being because they're forced to actually think and process stuff. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we live in an era, unfortunately, where, you know, um, there, in, in my mind, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's great coaches and then there's coaches who depend greatly on curriculum. So A, B, C, D, E, right. and they're not necessarily don't have the art ability to kind of go A to B and then over to F and then back to that moves that particular athlete in the, in a certain way. And, you know, it's, it's one thing, and you see this in human, in human relations, detection is one thing. Anybody can tell you what you're doing wrong, right? Doesn't matter whether it's your spouse or <laughs> your teacher or, yeah. or coach, right? It's, it's one thing to tell you what you're doing wrong. Anybody can generally detect. Whether they can detect the right thing, that's another thing, but they can detect. Whether they can correct that detection is, is, an, you know, is another phase. The greatest ones provide the correction without even providing the detection because you don't know need to know what you're doing wrong necessarily right. unless you really need to break something down and have an understanding of that but generally you need to have an understanding of what do i need to do to make it better so right. it's more about how did that feel okay well if i if you do that what what happens and so you, you develop that you know that feeling or that um positive shift to the correction or to where you want them to go by employing that Socratic piece and then driving them to that thing a lot in a lot of cases you said you know around the technical piece it's drills it's yeah. giving people drills that they can actually feel something and then once they feel the light switch goes on it's like holy shit okay now I get it you know yeah, yeah. and uh, so yeah it's it, and it's all as you said you know having all those arrows in your quiver all those tools in your toolbox to be able to okay that one's not working for this one so I got to try that way and this one's right. not working for that one but it's about that positive correction as yeah. opposed to necessarily all the negative detection you know right and it, it, the same around the video thing too like i can show you all day what you're doing wrong yeah but that doesn't help you you know and and so many coaches today over rely on those tools yeah. because they're insecure in delivering that you know that the the, the positive part about it them you know themselves right. yeah well there is that i i feel like especially with most a lot of the coaches these days um or just kind of in general like business and things of that nature there is that fear of being wrong, mm. right? Like fear of just like, hey, this is what I think and maybe it's not right and I need to relearn and get corrected. Otherwise, you know, I mean, because I definitely know, don't know everything when it comes to coaching a double full or coaching, you know, in, in that aspect, same within the business world. Like I yeah. don't know yeah. what, you, you, the only way you're going to learn is if you ask or, you know, try to have that conversation with the athlete like, hey, how is this feel? Well, let's try this. Let's play with this. Maybe you need to drop that arm a little bit sooner, or think yeah, about that yeah. downhill ski a little bit later. Or, yeah, you know, you're you're so right. You know, and you've kind of nailed one of the really critical, um, you know, kind of uh, concepts of of great great leadership and great you know coaching, great whatever mm -hmm. is having that vulnerability. Right. And if you have that vulnerability, the right to be wrong. Yeah. Um, then all of a sudden you you're more per, you're more of a human being you're not saying i it not it, it's my way or the highway i know everything mm -hmm. so then people will hear you more they don't care 
They don't care what you know unless they know you care, right? That the classic piece. Yep. And in yep. that case, by admitting the vulnerability and you know, being able to go to a place where, yeah, you might be wrong, then you become more human and then you become more approachable. You become, you know, uh, you have a much deeper connection to, to, to people and to, you know, to being able to help, um, you know, kind of move the needle. Right. No, definitely. I mean, it's one of those things that I think we could all, especially, I don't know, especially in the, the recent uh, world of, of uh, coaching in the freestyle world, it seems like everybody knows, <laughs> at least in the U.S., everyone, everyone has the right answer. Everyone's way is right. Yeah. No, no one can be wrong, which is kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I think that's a very common, you know, coaching malady. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you know, you, again, you go and look at the, the, the great greats, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and they're the ones that, that really reach people at a, at a deeply human level. And they can only do that if they have vulnerability, mm-hmm. you know? No, definitely. So, I mean, as you're going in, you're running this whole organization and, and what, what kind of helps you stay focused and kind of prioritize and get, and get everything done. Right. Cause there can be a lot of things on your hab, uh, on your plate and, maybe you can't get to everything in one day. I mean, what are kind of some of those habits that, that you've built that allow you to kind of, you know, take care of those vital priorities? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I have a, I have a bit of a, a philosophy around some of that. And, and one of the key tenets of that philosophy is procrastination is a powerful tool. <laughs> Definitely. And not, not, not every, not everything that, you know, kind of jumps into your face and there's a million things right in a day is a five alarm fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the most important things that you need to do to move what is most important for you, your business, your athletes, right. your, you know, wh- whatever it is, your product, um, you know, move, move that forward. And if you stay focused on that, you know, those key elements, um, some of those minutiae things, they may be important and they might boil up to the surface and then, you know, you can, you can deal with them, but getting yeah. caught in the minutiae of stuff right. just bogs you down and you, then you don't necessarily get, stay focused on the important things that really move the needle. You know? Yeah, no, that definitely, uh, that definitely. And I think sense. for, you know, for, for us in, in, in sport, it's, it's really been about, you know, <laughs> I took a page out of, you know, out of, uh, um, you know, one of the, the tenants of, of um, USSA's books in the early days, because they used to live by this. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the the question was, is, is this the best thing for our athletes? Right. And if I can answer that question, yes. Yeah. Regardless, Mm -hmm. with every decision, or every question, uh, then, then I'm on track. Mm -hmm. But if, if it's, you know, has nothing to do with them, or if it has little to do with what our, uh, you know, objective is, which is putting athletes on the podium, Mm-hmm. then I, it, I, I shouldn't be paying a lot of attention to it, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's definitely something that's, that's super simple that I think we, uh, at least here definitely have, have lost, uh, lose, lose sight of to, to a certain degree for sure. You know, hmm. well, that's why you're, that's why you're the goat. That's why you're the goat. <laughs> I <Peter. don't> know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I have another philosophy about the, the goat. You can always be the goat <laughs> or the goat and you will, yeah, in your career, you will be at some point. Right. Right. No, so, I mean, uh, speaking to that a little bit, I mean, as, as you've kind of gone along on your journey and uh, a lot of things that people kind of don't like to talk about is, is some of those failures along, along the way, right. Yeah. Those failures that you kind of need to have that really help kind of fuel that success. And it's a great, great learning moment. Um, but I feel like a lot of people don't really like to talk about some of those failures. And I, I mean, that one that speaks out to me, I'm sure you don't really want to talk about it too much is 98 Nagano, you know, oh, uh, Jean no, I mean, fourth. I, mean, that was, I love uh, talking about that. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, and, and this, this is, I, I, I would love, I'd rather hear people all day talk mm-hmm. about their failures than about their successes. You can, you, the world is full of people who you know, did, did this, made that, they were perfect. It was all good. I don't learn anything from that. Or I learned very little from that. What I really learned from is like, like, as you said, you know, when you, when people have those, those deepest failures that are, you know, uh, make them question their reality or question, you know, their direction or question how they were, their processes or, you know, motivation or all of those things. It doesn't mean you won't return to those pieces, but it, it, it makes for a real, um, a great uh, grounding 
and a great reassessment of where you are and where you want to go, you know? Yeah. yeah Nagano, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it was a, a an unbelievable, um, you know, crush. I mean, we, we went into, we had the world championships in Nagano in 97. Mm -hmm. uh, we came away with five, you know, Olympic uh, discipline medals in, in, in 97. We went into 98. We had exactly the same plan mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, training camps before, in terms of transition, you know, we had the athletes stop in Hawaii on the way over, have a couple of days to decompress and then be able to kind of come in fresh. Um, you know, we, every part of it was, was, you know, was well, well planned and well executed. Um, and we came away with zero medals yeah. and it was, a, it was a ground shaking, um, you know, kind of happening for not only for us, but I think for, you know, for the freestyle world. Right. Um, I remember, you know, the, one of the German commentators was, you know, kind of espousing in German, like just almost screaming like this it doesn't happen like there's just no way that Canada doesn't win medals you know yeah um but you know I think coming out of that I mean it it it, it gave me a you know kind of a few um pretty serious reckonings and and one is um that you don't control everything right um that you know uh as much as you know as much as you may plan prepare um execute you know evaluate um and you know kind of process 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 um, there are certain things that that transpire that you you don't control. Um, so you know, and and the the funny thing is, is that all of us who were involved in that in that time period, none of us can go back and put our finger on one thing or even a, a group of things and said, that's where we really went wrong. Yeah. Um, huh. But you know, on the other side of that, one of the things that you know that I really did um, kind of put my finger on that. Uh, helped me once I, you know, kind of reincarnated as a CEO about six years later right. was that um, I needed to, I need, this sounds a bit counterintuitive, but I needed to have a greater control over uh, my environment. When I was head coach of the program, uh, you know, I was, I, I was still behooven to a lot of um, parties above that directed or dictated a lot of the philosophy or a lot of the, um, direction of the the program, okay. and as as CEO, I was able to go in and really build it from scratch the way I knew it would function the best. Right. And uh, you know, from from that, uh, you know, we I, we were able to I think you know build a a really good program coming from you know two hundred four to you know World Championships at at twenty eleven. I think we had you know thirteen medals uh, yep. in Deer Valley at the at the World Championships there. Um, so, you know, I, I, and, you know, seven in Sochi and, and uh, so I, you know, I think we built a program that had the right elements. And I think that was just because it was solely focused on performance, on excellence and on accountability. You know? And so where would you say that they lost sight of that in, in 98? Right. Because um, I know that you didn't as a coach, right. You came in yeah. and had the success the year before you, have what you think is the right plan that's going to get uh, get the results that you need, right? And then um, yeah, I, I think you know if, if there's there's one thing, and I you know I think pretty much any organization that that's had you know kind of a long history of success, not not by design and not by arrogance, but you you can become a bit complacent, right? And 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 again, it's not by you know getting arrogant and just going oh, I don't need to do that. It's just you get a bit comfortable. Sure. And, you know, by having that comfort, you know, maybe certain details weren't paid attention to the same way that you would have if you were a little bit, you know, harder, hungrier, meaner. Right. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's being a bit more, um, you know, staying hungry and being able to kind of turn over all those rocks and, you know, and not let people be unaccountable um, and right. make sure that they, they are driving themselves and they're not okay. Well, they're okay. They'll, they'll just, when it, when it comes time, they'll be able to, you know, pull it out kind of thing. Now, how difficult and, is that to, to kind of maintain? Because I know as uh, certainly like as an athlete that it's, I say, I would say if it's easier as a coach to make sure you keep your athletes uh, hungry and obviously they're usually passionate about it and in it for the right thing. And, 
and same thing in, in many other aspects of business and everything else. When, when you're from the top, it's a little bit easier, but for, for you yourself and going through, I know I have my moments where some of that motivation and it's not, it's not that you're not thinking about it. You know what your goals are, you know what you have uh, in mind and what you want to accomplish, but there are those uh, days that can turn into a week or so where you've kind of just hit this plateau and, and you are a little bit complacent. Like you think you have a good, good kind of game plan, but then you kind of start to, you know, just start to go through the motions a little bit as you talk. Yeah. About. Look, I think there's a, there's a bit of a difference between, you know, I think you're describe, describing a highly motivated person that's become a bit stale, sure. which that's normal. Everybody's going to go through those flat periods. Right. Right. Um, but then there's, then there's the other side of that, which is I deserve. And you, you can see, you know, where you see culture rot and where you see things really go from a highly performing organization to one that, that devolves into chaos mm -hmm. is when you have, um, you know, that, that culture piece that was built on, I will earn to, it starts to creep in this, I deserve. Okay. And as soon as that I deserve, and it may only be one or two toxic elements that go, well, you know what? I'm part of this group. I may not have paid the same dues that those guys paid, right? But I'm part of this group, and I deserve whatever they get, right? Well, no, you don't. You yeah. you have to earn that. Mm -hmm. And but when that mentality creeps in, then that that complacency creeps in, and that has nothing to do with being stale. That has to just, you know, I, I'm I'm gonna, I don't have to earn this. I just I deserve it. It should just come to me, and 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 that's all good. And we, you know, to be honest, I mean, we had we had an, a, a bit of that going on in our program when I came back, uh, you know, in, in, in a little over a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really had to kind of shake the tree a bit with our coaching staff and with, you know, with the athletes and, and, and go, look, you know, we're, we're drifting in this direction. This is not where we want to go. So we need to shift this. And, and I think, you know, we've had some, some great changes. We've still got a lot of work to do um, to get back to being, you know, hungry and hard and mean. Right. Um, to be Mick and, you know, yeah. in all disciplines, we've got some, some great athletes across all the disciplines and um, just making sure that hunger stays deeply embedded in, in, in that everyday performance. If you can go to bed every day, it doesn't matter if you're stale. It doesn't matter if you had a shit workout, but right. if you can go to bed every day and, and say, I did everything I could do today mm -hmm. to make myself a better athlete. You're all good. Right. You're, you're all good. You're at least you're moving in the right direction for sure. Yep. Well, I mean, so it, would that be some advice you kind of have for uh, some people that are kind of struggling a little bit out there or navigating, cutting their way through some of their own fears and, and, and things of that nature when you're, you know, necessarily you're an entrepreneur, you're starting a new business or you're a coach or you're an athlete that's kind of, you know, not getting the results that they would like. I mean, is that, that kind of something you would, you would offer up to them to get a good night of sleep and yeah. sure you're busting your ass during the day and the results. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and just stay, stay to where your passion is, you know, like if, mm -hmm. if you, if you're always epicentered on your passion, you, you will always come from the right place. Right. And, and you will, you know, I think Steve Jobs said, you know, I, I you have to have passion because if you don't have passion, you won't have that, you know, that fuel to be able to get over those difficult times. Right. And, and, you know, again, if you see, you know, any of the greats out there, they, they've had, you know, they've had some hardships, they've had to overcome some adversity. And the only thing that's got them through that adversity is their passion and their belief in, in kind of moving through that. Yeah. And, and adaptability. I mean, being able to, okay, well, you know, kind of read the situation and, and then maybe adapt based on what the situation is. But it, it really comes down to having that passion every day and just staying to what, you know, what you believe um, yeah. and, and staying to what you're passionate about. Yeah. Know? No, I mean, that, so uh, it's definitely, definitely true. It definitely makes sense. You got to stay, stay with your passion. I like, I like that a lot for sure. Um, kind of speaking a little bit to that passion. I mean, after 98, uh, things kind of don't go the way you want you end up uh, introducing kind of freestyle skiing in a bigger way, I would say, or at least a little bit more on the map by going down to Australia, getting some work in with Jackie Cooper, Elisa Camplin, and, and uh, Elisa ended up winning gold in 2002 or six? Two. Uh, gold, well, double, yeah. She was double. gold in two okay. and, and bronze in six, yeah. Bronze in six, yeah. So, yeah. But, I mean, they were – there were a few here and there, but Australian uh, skiing or freestyle skiing has definitely not been that, 
was never really on the map that much. And it's, it's funny, you know, I just chatted with uh, Matt Graham a couple of weeks ago, you know, 2018 silver medalist, and you had Dale Begg before that. And now it's kind of got uh, its own culture, as you were talking to uh, a little bit earlier. And, and they're kind of building something, uh, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to catch up and, and they've passed a lot of different uh, other countries that have had such success. Yeah, look, I think, you know, Australia's an amazing um, country, sport country. And I think they, in the winter sports side particularly, they punch way above their weight. Um, you know, they, they've had a, you know, a pretty phenomenal track record of, you know, particularly Olympic World Championship success there. Right. And I, I think it goes down to, you know, it comes down to a couple of things. I mean, certainly um, the, the, um, the consistency of the leadership, um, right. you know, Jeff Lipshut, who's done an amazing job for decades there now in terms of, you know, kind of spiriting that program and, um, you know, on the, on the winter, the whole winter sports side. Um, but I, it goes even deeper than that, you know, to the, to the coaching side. And I think, you know, you know, particularly in the mogul side, you know, you get a guy like Steve Desovich, who I think is one of the greatest coaches of all time in any, in any sport. Um, you know, he's consistently produced people or help produce people that have the raw technical skills and learn to come through and produce in, in those, those time, time frames. And, and uh, so certainly in, in that realm, you know, they've done a really good job of, of finding great coaches and being able to bring them in with, with uh, athletes who really want to learn and really want to win. Like that's a, that's one of the Australian things is that, that audacity to, you know, Hey, look, I don't care. I, I'm going to, you know, I, I can do this. Yeah. And that was one of the, you know, the great things that, you know, was watching the the women's aerial program in particular in the early two thousands was, you know, just how driven they were, mm -hmm. um, you know, and how, you know, Elisa, you know, um, she, she was probably one of the ones that had the, you know, most, audacious view of where, what she was going to do and how she was going to do it. You know, it's kind of Bill Johnson-ish, you know, like where you say before, yeah, I'm going to win the Olympics and, you know, kind of that's it. And, and, and she was very much like that. But, you know, I think that that's part of Australia's raw DNA in, in terms right. of sports. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. It's, it's an amazing. No, it, it, it reminds, as you talk to that, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, uh, not only the, the scheme, but the tennis, right? Leighton Hewitt, just kind of that grinder, get to every ball, just, you know, never say, you know, die. And just that attitude of, of kind of never quitting. And then obviously, as you talk to Desovich, he is an extremely competitive guy. I was <laughs> little, <laughs> yeah, I was chatting yeah. with, uh, don't play, to, don't play table tennis with him. <laughs> <laughs> I was chatting with, uh, Matt about, uh, when I was younger and went to uh, when world uh, world mogul used to be a camp in, in Worcester Blackcomb, And at that time period, uh, Florida state was a really big college football program at the time. Yeah, and yeah, Desovich yeah. was all about Florida state. And I grew up a Florida state fan. And so, you know, we talked about it and I was little and I remember seeing him years later at the water amps in park city. Uh, I think he was training there with Dale and uh, Jerry Grossi and, um, uh, I'm like, yeah, you know, he's wearing an Alabama hat. And I was like, I thought, I thought you were a Florida State fan. He's like, ah, they suck now. They, they haven't won in, in years. I, you know, I'm Alabama. Alabama keeps winning all the nationals. It's like, so you're just that. He's like, oh, yeah, it's got to be the winner. You got to be winning. Yeah. You want me to be a fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's, a bit of, he's a bit of a bandwagon jumper, uh, you know. But, you know, he's, he's, he, uh, he's deep down, he's still, he's, he's pretty loyal. He's a, he's a winner. He wants to. He yeah. wants to be with the winners. It's hard to uh, hard to blame him. It's good yeah. to be winning. That's for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, talking about uh, your career, not only athletically but coaching, business, all those aspects. Like, who who are some uh, people that really um, helped mentor you or kind of inspired you and, and kind of helped you along the way to kind of uh, stokes the passion that you had for the sport and, and life and everything else. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that that's the, the great thing um, is uh, you know, there are, there are always difference makers in your life and, and people who kind of, you know, kind of reason um, you know, kind of reason season lifetime kind of people that kind of come into your life. And I think um, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to have some, some, some great mentors, great partners, uh, you know, comrades uh, along the way and mm -hmm. I, I think um, you know uh, in, in my case it's been kind of an eclectic collection of, of a lot of different people who exhibited 
you know, kind of certain things either when I needed it or things that were core values that helped me understand, you know, what, what needed to be done or how to do it best or, or whatever, you know, I mean, it goes back to, you know, grade four teachers and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, track, you know, track, uh, track coaches, you know, in, in your high school years and et cetera, et cetera, or, you know, people that taught you skiing or, or whatever. And even today, you know, I, I get to work with some amazing people, um, you know, inside of the group of people that we work with. And, and I've had some exposure to, you know, to some phenomenal people in, in, in the uh, sports world, uh, you know, in the, the pro sports world through, um, you know, through, through some of the avenues that I have. And, and it, it, it's, it's, a you, 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 it's not one thing or another. It's not one person or another. I think, you know, for me, it's really been able to draw on all those people and, and, um, you know, have that eclectic experience of, of the the strengths of the collective strengths of all those people, as opposed to just, just one, you know, one mentor or one person. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. You got to take from uh, as many people as you can get. You know, one of the things my dad always talked about was if you, whether it's a coach or, or a book or something like that, if there's three kind of main takeaways you can take away from a book or a coach or, or something um, that it's definitely been uh, fulfilling and definitely worth uh, venturing kind of kind of down that path for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So speaking to, uh, you know, a little bit of the, the skiing world and uh, let's talk a little bit about Harkin Banks. Can we talk a little bit about Hot Dog the movie? I mean, it is one of the best movies out there that people have probably never seen, right? David Naughton, Patrick Hauser, that was so, that came out in 84, right? Was that, yeah. when did they film it? Was that, did they film it that same year? Because you were a world champion in 1984, right? And you were second in the a- world in 83. 83. 83. Yeah. Okay. Runner up in, in uh, um, 81 and 82 and 83, I was world okay. cup champion. And- okay. Uh, 84, it was, uh, my, <clears throat> excuse me, my last competitive year and, last year. uh, finished fourth, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the movie was filmed in Squaw in 83, right. spring of 83. Um, it was, it was supposed to take, uh, I think it was supposed to only take about five weeks to film, you know, maybe, I might even less than that. I think three, maybe three weeks they had originally planned on shooting the, you know, the kind of on snow pieces. Yeah. And then typical, you know, it's kind of Squaw spring. The weather yeah. was, uh interesting <laughs> and it and it ended up you know kind of devolving into about you know six weeks of of uh filming but um yeah and it was it was an amazing experience and you know a lot, a lot of great people you know kind of in the background of that and there was a lot of people that spun out of that from the freestyle world that went on to do great things in in you know in hollywood um uh one of my you know great friends uh frank Bedore. Um, who was, you know, who I was second to in, in 81 and 82. Um, he went on to, you know, kind of got the, the, uh, the movie bug out of, out of that film and went on to do, you know, amazing things and uh, went from being an actor to, to uh, a script broker to a producer and produced, you know, executive produced. There's something about Mary and, really? um, you know, some other films. Yeah. Yeah. And, and still to this day is deeply in, ingrained in writing, uh, um, and, uh, you know, and, and film projects. And there was, uh, Jeff Chumas who, who was also kind of engaged in that, in that process. And now is, you know, kind of embedded in that world. And, uh, Scott Steindorf, he wasn't involved in that, but was also, was involved in, in, you know, deeply involved now in the, in the film industry and, uh, did, uh, Lincoln Lawyer and, um, you know, uh, lots of, lots of projects. And Paul Rosenberg, uh, who was, um, uh, uh, Kenji, uh, he, you know, he went on to produce all kinds of stuff. I think he actually even did some, some stuff with Eminem. Um, okay. and, uh, and I think with, with one of the Superman, uh, franchise or one of the Superman, uh, um, pieces. So yeah, I, there was a, it was pretty interesting to see how that spun into a whole bunch of different things for, for the freestyle world. Yeah, um, absolutely. but yeah, to your point, it was, it was one of those kind of, um, frozen in time, pieces that that um in one way or another whether it was uh interesting or not uh definitely put a mark on the board for 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 freestyle and how so what was that experience like getting to kind of go through and do those stunts and kind of go through that filming because i feel like that's got to be such an interesting you know 
uh, time, like, all right, how, how do they direct you when you're going th through off an aerial jump? Or is it just like, just do what you need to do and just make sure you land? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was kind of that. And that was, that was the hard part because, you know, we're dealing with, a, you know, a, again, the weather situation and then the, the, the snow situation. And, you know, it was kind of hurry up and wait as it always is in the film business. And then all of a sudden it's go. And you're trying to cram, you know, in a 15 minute window because the weather's finally got, you know, clear and sunny and maybe not blowing a gale that you're trying to cram this, you know, these pieces in and try and get stuff in the can. Uh, yeah, look, I, again, you know, we were, Jeff Chumas was kind of the skiing side, um, you know, kind of director manager or, you know, kind of uh, operated the the skiing uh, equation for, from the freestyle side. And, and he was very, you know, he was, as Jeff always is, he's, he's very compassionate, you know, kind of understanding person and was able to kind of help everybody kind of, you know, trying to optimize the athletic view of right. the thing. I think that the other, to the credit of the people who actually had, um, you know, uh, were in control of the project, they, they took on a lot of, um, you know, what we were trying to convey the sport to be, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, what their concept of it was in the mind's eye of the, of, you know, of the, the writer at the time. I mean, yeah. um, so yeah, I, I think I, you know, I, it was an interesting piece. It's you know, when you look back on it as anything in a time piece, it's it's uh, you know, there there are certain parts, but now you kind of look back and cringe a little bit, <laughs> more than a little. But but you know, I, I mean, a, a lot of that too, you know, that was just that was artistic license. It wasn't necessarily what we were about, and certainly what the sport was about. But that's right. how you create a movie, right? Like yeah. there's an artistic no, license that goes in that, you know, that you know, like that makes things uh, a little more appealing to, you know, to, to from a, a movie entertainment standpoint, we'll say. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, Harkin, Harkin Banks is the hero. I remember that blue, that blue suit, that blue suit. Yeah. He goes in and he, he gets it done. I think, um, well, one of the funny things for those out there listening, yeah, I would say it's probably a little bit more R-rated. So it might have like a G licensing on it, but I would not show it to like a nine-year-old or 10-year-old or something. You know, that was uh, no, after yeah. one of our years of Freestyle International, uh, I, my parents got it for my brother and I as a Christmas present. And they, we had to go through and we watched a very censored version, I would say, of that film. I don't think that they knew uh, what, what to expect out of it. They just knew Hot Dog the movie. And uh, yeah, no, it's a... I still have the, uh, I got to find the VHS player, but I still have the, uh, the VHS, you know, it's definitely yeah, yeah. a classic one for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, I, I got a good question on some books. Are there any books you can kind of recommend that, that have kind of helped you, uh, along the way for success, or you just thought are really entertaining, kind of interesting, whether it's, uh, you know, help helping toward along those lines of success. Yeah, I, I'm going to tell you, and you know, this may, may be the worst anti-answer you've ever had. <laughs> I've had a few I, so far, so that's fine. I, I, I hate reading. I, I mean, I, I'm a voracious news reader. Okay. I'm a voracious, um, you know, like I'll, I'll, I love reading like fact-based, you know, like news or, you know, stories about, you know, people or things. Yep. But I'm, I'm far more, I, my, my draw of information, my draw of understanding of things or you know my my knowledge um intake is, is largely just talking to people and reaching people and uh or you know trying to know people who know people you know kind of have that, those kind of conversations so very few books you right. know i mean I, I obviously through you know through my athletic career there was a few that helped me understand certain things and and uh brought things into perspective and mm -hmm. you read snippets of stuff but it, it's more news based for me or more information uh autobiography autobiographical based right. than so, so kind of talking to that a little bit what helps you kind of retain some of that information because i know there's sometimes when have the good conversation or something like that and you're like oh there was that one good like like takeaway and it's, i'm drawing a blank on it like what's kind of helped helped you be able to retain yeah. some of those good yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think, in, you know, in, in my case, that's one of the things I learned early on, even as a, a kid in school, is I could either pay attention to the teacher mm -hmm. and, and take what they were saying and assimilate it. Okay. And then if I didn't understand it, go back and ask. And if I didn't understand it, go back and ask again. If I didn't understand it, go back and ask again. And I was probably a pain in the ass to some of them. But at the end, the payoff was that I did deeply understand it. As opposed to... I found if I sat and took notes, yeah, 
I wasn't paying attention necessarily to what was being said and I wasn't assimilating anything that was being said. Right. So, you know, and again, if you equate that to the, to the, you know, to the athletic world, um, you know, you need to hear what the coach is saying. Mm-hmm. And then you need to be engaged in that interactive process with them to be able to process what, what's going on. If you're, right. if you're writing notes, you're, you're not doing that, right? Like you're, right. so, so I, I think it's, it's really about, you know, kind of active listening and being okay. engaged in that active listening process. And then again, back to that vulnerability, not being afraid to ask stupid questions, right? Definitely. Ask the question. There is no bad question. If you don't understand it, ask again. If you don't understand it, ask again. Until you understand it, keep asking the question. You know, right. yeah. and this is where the onus. If you get a great, great coach, they're not going to go. Look, I told you that already. Yeah. What it means is I told it to you in the wrong way that you're not getting it. So I need to find another way to tell it to you. Right. You know? No, absolutely. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I always tell. Uh, I think that goes into a lot of the communication, right? Because I feel like communication is such a big kind of oh. part of that process, and I tell athletes all the time I can't fix problems I don't know about it's the same thing of asking me a question if I don't know that there's an issue or that you're not understanding then I'm assuming we're all good and I'm moving on to the next thing (laughs) and that 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 at the highest highest performance level of an athlete like when you get to and this is you know one of the things Olympic games that you know NBA finals and you know any of those like Super Bowls whatever those elite elite things that's where you know, communication is, as you just said, it's the most paramount tool, you know, and I say this all the time when we go into games to, to athletes, you need to communicate with us as your management team, you know, coaches, man, you know, whatever, team leaders, whatever, because as just as you said, if we don't know, we can't help. If we know, if we're aware, and part of it's on us of being aware, right. part of it's also you opening up and, and, and speaking and telling, you know. Um, cause if what happens in those high pressure situations is almost always in any high pressure situation, communication shuts down. Yeah. It's the exactly the opposite of what needs to happen Mm -hmm. is that it needs to stay open. It doesn't mean it gets erratic. You don't want it all over the shop, right? Right. Because that's another blow up, but there needs to be those open, that communication has to continue. And as long as that communication continues, then you have total awareness and you have the ability to, to intervene or to, you know, to, um, to fix things or make sure that things are on the right track. And you have that quietness to be able to, you know, create the platform for performance. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely allows them to kind of perform their best, right? When everything's open, everything's out on the table, you know, everything you need to know, they know everything. And, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's any way to kind of shorten that? Or is that something that's just built through trust with the athlete or coworker or whatever else? I mean, is there, is there a way to kind of shorten that gap? Because I haven't found one. As much as I've said that, I still don't think they really think I'm being honest and truthful about, hey, I can't fix problems I don't know about. Or, hey, yeah. you got to communicate. I mean, I feel like it's only kind of built through that trust of, Oh, he's actually being genuine or on like I can't ask any question and it might be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Two, 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 two things, and I'll tell you a quick story, but um, two things around that. Number one is obviously, yeah, you know, there has to be that that trust uh, safe space to be able right. to have, you know, to say anything. You're like, I don't want you there. You know, like in this yeah. case, like, you know, don't don't be there with me. Like, you know, be, I want you there, but I don't want you there, kind of thing. <laughs> and 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 that's that that's a hard conversation to have, maybe you know, sure. to someone that you care a lot about. But at the end of the day, if that's what's going to give you performance in that time, you need to articulate that, right. you know? And, and the, the other is self-awareness for the coach. Sure. Uh, or, and, or the athlete. Like you, you need to be self-aware because if you're not aware, mm-hmm. then you don't, it's the same thing, but on yourself, you're not even, you don't even know, you know, what, what that, you know, that, that there's something and you can't solve it for yourself if you don't sure. even know that it's an, that it's an issue. I'll give you a quick story about, uh, again, back to Steve Desovich and, and uh, you know, we had this, this um, uh, situation in, in, uh, in Lillehammer. Um, okay. Jean-Luc Broussard had won the, the, um, the semifinals of the Olympic Games. And this is, you know, when the great Sergei Shuplitsov and Edgar Grosperon were, yep. you know, were all in the hunt. And it was an amazing kind of, you know, uh, battle of the heavyweights, uh, you know, kind of mm-hmm. group of people. And, uh, so um, uh, John Luke had, had won the, 
you know, and had won, and and normally there wasn't a day between. And this this in this case, the the semifinals were a separate day than the finals. So John Luke had a whole day to kind of stew on this, a night to stew on this. But he yeah. was he was pretty pretty cool cucumber, and and you know, and kind of knew how to manage himself pretty well. So nor- normally in a in a World Cup. Um, uh, you know, I was at the bottom and, and Steve was at the top with the athlete and at a world championship Olympic games, we kind of settled on this where both of us were at the top and we would normally have somebody that was at the bottom that would deal with the, the kind of stuff that went on at the bottom mm-hmm. just so that we could have, you know, kind of a little more focus and, and take care of more of the details at the top. We got to the top and it was about four or five people to go before Jean-Luc and Jean-Luc had to run last, of course. And, you know, there's all this pressure building and, Des came to me and he said, I can't do this. I, I can't, I know I'm exuding um, a nervousness and an energy that might push itself right. into Jean-Luc. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to be there. And I said, okay, that, that's, that's fine. Good. I'll, I'll go to the gate with him. You know, we'll do everything as normal. And then I'll, I'll go to the gate with him. And it, and Jean-Luc, you know, went to the gate and uh, obviously he had a, you know, a phenomenal final run. He, you know, became Olympic champion. Still one of my favorite top five. Yeah. The, the absorption extension and just the yeah. dynamic yeah. skiing. It's a, oh, an amazing, amazing athlete. Yeah. But about a year later, we were at a, we were at a function and I, we, we never discussed this with Jean-Luc ever. Mm-hmm. About a year later, we were at a function and Jean-Luc was recounting this experience to this massive room full of people after a, a golf tournament. And, and uh, he, he actually talked about that. He felt um, as he was going into the gate, this kind of screen of protection around him that created this absolute zone of quiet hmm. and that he had nothing that was piercing his, his, you know, his uh, awareness, his confidence and, and everything. Sure. And it was, it was unbelievably astounding you know, now knowing the backside of that from both myself and from Steve's side, yeah. from a number of, from a number of uh, standpoints. Number one, that it was the, it was actually true for him. It was true for Jean Luc that 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 bubble was there. But most importantly, I think, and this goes to you know Steve's selfless um, you know kind of thought process uh, and his self awareness right. is that Absolutely. he understood that he was oscillating at that thing and it might have an effect sure. and his ego wasn't big enough that he said i got to go and be in the gate you know because i got to be on tv or i got to be whatever right i got to you know i got to be yeah. there it was like performance is more important whatever's more important for this guy to perform mm-hmm. I, I i'm willing to do and then adaptability for us to be able to kind of go, okay, we'll make that change. And it all seamlessly just went. So, you know, there's some interesting lessons inside of that in terms of selflessness, in terms of, you know, ego not taking a, a role in terms of adaptability and, sure. and then ultimately what the outcome can be, you know? Yeah, no, that's crazy to, to, to definitely think that that way and have to be that quick kind of on your toes, you know, that day, four or five skiers out, uh, mobile skiers runs are only 20 30 seconds so to be able to <laughs> think like that that quickly is definitely uh definitely interesting for for sure so would you say there are some kind of unique traits that you have not you know as you talk about uh being able to have that self-awareness and stuff like that that you've been able to kind of uh self-identify that you would say are, are unique to you that have kind of helped you along your way and and you know i think it's profound with definitely you know the athlete comes first Right. And that's, you know, is it in the best interest of the athletes? That's something that's so simple, but can get so lost in translation and just kind of thrown to the side. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, uh, two, two, two sides of, of, of that thing. One is, you know, one is learned, um, learned behaviors Mm -hmm. and, and one is, you know, kind of who, who you, you know, what, what you are. Um, you know, I think I, I, a lot of people will tell you, that ADHD is a curse. I'll, I'll tell you for me, it's in many ways, it's been a blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's given me the ability to think outside the box, to be adaptable, to kind of, you know, run one way. And then if that's not working to be able to kind of change and, and, and switch directions quickly. So I don't get stuck in the mud on certain things. Um, you know, is, is, you know, are there negatives? Yeah, for sure. And, and so, you know, things have had to adapt around that, but I think largely it's been a blessing to be, 
in this in this world and and be able to have that as 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 part of my you know uh, DNA and makeup. A everything else, you know, largely, you know, it's as as you would say, you know, you're having parents that you know allowed you to grow and gave you the opportunity to to grow and develop and put you in the environment to to having great you know teachers, coaches, mentors, yeah. partners, um, you know, all of those that that um, helped you understand messaging or or gave you the freedom to fail or um, you know gave you the opportunity to succeed. But they're they're all part of the learnings along the way. Sure. So and th those end up becoming this eclectic collection of what you represent and how you represent what you think. Right. And uh, so it, it's never, it's never really one thing. Um, there may be pivotal pieces, you know, where you have a profound shift in, but um, again, it, it all boils down over time to being this kind of eclectic collection of all the people around you and all the experiences that you've had as you, as you've kind of you know, made your journey through, through the whole thing. Right. And grown, grown. And I, I will say my parents blame you. For, for most, they definitely blame you for, for mobile ski dragon a little eight year, you know, I was just following my dad. You can bring a ski camp. Cool. We all drove up to, uh, to Mount hood from, from park city. And, uh, it was, it was eight years old. I think I was the youngest in the camp by a pretty, pretty good clip. Yeah. And then, you know, you turned me into a mogul monster. I, I know the first day, the last day or whatever, they had a, a ski off where you got to ski against some of the coaches and I won like five or six duels. I'm pretty sure I beat Kari Tra. You know, I definitely, be, I know I beat Kari. I'm pretty sure I beat Darcy Downs as well. Yeah. Now, Kari yeah. hadn't won her gold yet. She only had her bronze from 98. <laughs> you got beat Lasse, Tobin Sutherland, uh, Darcy yeah. was taking people down left and right. So, I mean, it was. Well, and, and you know, most importantly, <laughs> you kicked your dad's ass. That's true. Cause I your dad. Bless his soul. Bless his heart. You know, great. He, he must've been a hell of a wrestler, but he was a horrible mogul skier. <laughs> I'm sure I'd love to hear that. Yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, de definitely true though. He, it's had, definitely he true. had the sit back Sally, like you could not imagine. It was. <laughs> he definitely did. He definitely did. So any chances of a freestyle international, like comeback, you know, up at hood, I don't know if the, is the water ramp in the woods into the, the, for those out there that don't know, there was in this, back woods somewhere uh by camp arowana on the way to zigzag some random turnoff you were in these fields and it was like this dark muddy pond with a couple water ramps built on like the back of a truck or something it was definitely it would sway if there was a slight breeze or anything like that and i remember walking through like okay this is interesting yeah <laughs> yeah, so that was that was an interesting time because you know there was uh, there was a, actually a ban on inverted aerials in the United States at the time, right? And um, and there was no no water ramps at all in the in the United States. So um, literally, you know, bought a piece of land. We were running the camps, and obviously, I wanted to make sure we had a safe environment. Bought a piece of land, had had uh, you know backhoes digging this hundred foot by hundred foot by ten foot deep pond uh and built the ramps you know shortly after that and had kids jumping um you know that same that same summer and uh and you know we that that interestingly enough the, the property's still there the ramps are, are, are pretty much uh dilapidated and, and gone now obviously are they still uh, there though yeah <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah they're they're overgrown and you know they're there and dilapidated but the, the funny thing was, is, you know, we had, we, we got a few vagrants that kind of made their way onto the property and uh, my youngest son and I had to go down, Hunter had to go down and, uh, and vacate them from uh. the property a couple of summers ago. <laughs> okay. And uh, so we, we went in and, and, uh, and spent uh, 12 hours um, vacating and, and burning everything that was, uh, you know, that was, had kind of accumulated, uh, and getting rid of everything that accumulated there and gotcha. trying to get it back to its normal overgrown state. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's still, it's still there. Yeah. Okay. Just, just past Shorty's corner. Camp. I think we do. I think we do a uh, reunion camp. We get the band <laughs> back together. Darcy, Lasse, Kari. I know we could get so I know you could get some kids. That's for sure. Up at hood. <laughs> uh, I, the last time I was in Govey, I know government camps come a long way. You know, and that was a sad thing. So <laughs> when I had my, my, my son there and we went and we did that, we spent all day, you know, kind of doing that. And then the, 
we blazed up the mountain uh, real quick and didn't get there till like 9.30. Didn't have time to stop in Govey. Just went up to the mountain, showed them the, the snow on the mountain, then blazed okay. down to Jan's place in, in Hood River mm-hmm. and spent the night there. But um, yeah, didn't, I have not seen Govey since, since probably 90, 97. Gotcha. And, yeah, uh, I think that was probably the year that I was at. Yeah, 90, 98, I think. Yeah, 90, 90, 96 or 97 was the last time I, I've, I've kind of been, spent any time in Govey. And I'm, I'd love to go back and spend some time and see what it's, because I always, I always thought it was a great place. I, I loved yeah. Hood. I loved, you know, loved the train, the mountain, the, in, the environment there is, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, and uh, to see, uh, see Govey again, it'd be interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's come a long way. They've definitely, well, you know, come a long way. Not, not too, you know, there's a few more buildings in there. You can still get a Huckleberry shake. Yeah. Huckleberry, yeah. And they still, yeah. they still have, uh, have plenty of those, but, uh, <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time, Peter. I really appreciate you, uh, coming on and, uh, hopefully we'll get to see you in, in September. For the, for yeah, the no, it's been my pleasure, Bobby. Yeah. And, uh, best regards to your family and, uh, good luck with, uh, with everything. Perfect. All right. Thanks everybody. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.